0: From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground, as the world marks the 75th anniversary of the defeat of the Nazis in World War II, a discussion about fascism and today's failed neoliberal order with historian Vijay Prashad
1: cut social spending you cut health spending cut education spending you basically empty out the state you make what we call a neoliberal state and the liberals the kind of centrist elements they basically are the ones driving this agenda and they compromise themselves
0: and we hear the voices of nurses honoring their colleagues who have died of covid-19 because they say lawmakers have failed to protect them and the american people
2: how many of these nurses died because this administration, this Congress, our elected officials, our government agencies failed to act? We stand here today, our hearts full of pain, but also with discrimination and demanding action.
0: All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, ground OnTheGroundShow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Iveram. Two months after the coronavirus shut down, more than 36 million Americans have been thrown out of work. At least 1.4 million are infected with the virus, and the death toll stands at more than 86,000. Still, even though the U.S. was alerted by China about the virus back in January, The federal government has yet to respond with guaranteed wide-scale testing, medical care, or a social safety net of income, food, or shelter. After agreeing with Republican bailouts for corporations in three emergency stimulus plans, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Leader Nancy Pelosi promised last week to unveil a Rooseveltian package of aid to Americans. But there is little in the legislation called the HEROES Act to compare to the large-scale government programs that created jobs, food assistance, and housing during the presidency of Franklin D. Roosevelt and the Great Depression of the 1930s. But the proposed law does include hazard pay for frontline workers, emergency funding for the U.S. Postal Service, and those enforced OSHA standards demanded by nurses as they rallied in front of the White House last month. Rather than offer Medicare for All, it expands federal subsidies for COBRA, an expensive health care program that allows laid-off workers to remain on their employer-provided health insurance plans, and this is a massive giveaway to the health insurance industry. Late Thursday, Senator Bernie Sanders, arguably the leader for the progressive wing in Congress, issued a statement calling for emergency Medicare for all during the pandemic and $2,000 a month for each American adult. And Representative Pramila Jayapal of Washington State and fellow co-chair of the Progressive Caucus, Mark Pocan, called for the vote on the bill scheduled for today, May 15th, to be postponed. At a virtual rally by the Poor People's Campaign on Thursday night, the Reverend William Barber said these series of stimulus plans are not addressing the needs of most Americans.
3: Imagine a country being in the midst of a pandemic and they pass three bills and 83% of the money goes to corporations, not people, corporations, inanimate corporations. And then 27 million people who don't have insurance, were just left out. When the one thing you need in the midst of a pandemic is health care. 62 million people were left out who work for less than a living wage. 62 million people. Now they got a title change from service workers, essential workers. It's a damnable shame to give people a title change, but you do not change the conditions under which they work.
0: Despite the fact that no entire state has met the standard for reopening set by the Centers for Disease Control, 48 of the 50 U.S. states are in some phase of reopening their economies. Wisconsin's stay-at-home rules were overturned this week by the state's Supreme Court, and revelers flocked to bars in Wisconsin, where Many were photographed wearing no masks and did not practice social distancing. In Maryland, Governor Larry Hogan announced a new more relaxed standard called Safer at Home that goes into effect today. But Maryland's largest city will not be reopening. Baltimore Mayor Jack White said Thursday that the city needs more testing before it can reopen and needs the state to provide tests.
4: Baltimore City is simply not in a position to safely reopen at this time. To get there, we must significantly increase testing capacity in order to meet guidelines established by public health experts. To date, the state has failed to provide local jurisdictions, including Baltimore City, with the testing resources we need to be able to safely reopen. I very much like to reopen, but until the state steps up to the plate and provide us with testing help, it would be irresponsible for us to relax our restrictions. Based on Baltimore City's population, World Health Organization guidance would indicate roughly 2,700 to 2,800 tests should be completed per day. We're not there yet. For the weekly cycle from May to 4 through May 10, the most f- recent full cycle, the average number of tests conducted per day was 571. So as you can see, there's a large disparity between where we are at currently and where the CDC guidance is recommending we be at to reopen safely.
0: Also on Thursday, Dr. Rick Bright, former director of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, who was ousted by the Trump administration, warned lawmakers at a House hearing that without better planning, 2020 could be the darkest winter in modern history.
5: The window is closing to... Address this pandemic because we still do not have a standard centralized coordinated plan to take our nation through this response. But time is running out because the virus is still spreading everywhere. People are getting restless to leave their homes, and we have to make critical decisions on how to balance the economy and science. My concern about this fall is compounded by my knowledge and preparation and response to many years of influenza outbreaks, pandemic influenza outbreaks and seasonal influenza outbreaks. In our country in 2017, we had nearly 79,000 people die in the US from influenza. That coupled with a COVID-19 resurgence this fall could be devastating for our healthcare systems and for Americans. We have a limited window of opportunity to get plans in place to address both of those.
0: Bright was moved from his job after he publicly warned that the administration was not moving swiftly to address the pandemic in January and also pushed back on the stockpiling of anti-malarial drugs promoted by the Trump administration, but found to be ineffective or even dangerous in treating COVID-19 patients. Moral leaders such as the Reverend William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign are questioning if Trump In failing to take quick action against the virus in January and in promoting the false choice of the economy versus health is culpable for these tens of thousands of deaths. But that is not the legal case that Trump is facing right now. On Wednesday, the U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments to determine whether Congress can subpoena Trump's personal tax records to investigate possible wrongdoing. During the arguments on May 12th, the justices referenced a number of cases that may not bode well for Trump, including United States versus Nixon. In that case, the House Judiciary Committee subpoenaed those now infamous tapes related to the Watergate scandal, and President Richard Nixon was ordered to turn over tapes to the committee. On Wednesday, Justice Elena Kagan said that it might set a dangerous precedent to decide that Congress cannot get access to presidential records to do their job.
6: What it seems to me you're asking us to do is to put a kind of 10-ton weight on the scales between the president and Congress, and essentially to make it impossible for Congress to perform oversight and to carry out its functions where the president is concerned. And you're quite right in what you said before, that this isn't going to be the last such case. And I wonder whether that fact isn't a good reason to reject your proposed rule.
0: In the same category of the trials of Trump, there have been several bombshell revelations that further exposes the Russiagate scandal as a hoax. Aaron Maté of the Gray Zone reported on newly released congressional testimony from Sean Henry, president of CrowdStrike, the firm behind the Russian email hacking allegation, which is at the core of Russiagate. When Henry testified in a closed hearing at the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence in 2017, he told them, quote, We did not have concrete evidence, end quote, that alleged Russian hackers actually took email from the servers of the Democratic National Committee. The leaked email included facts about the DNC in 2016, including, cheating against the Bernie Sanders campaign that helped to further sour portions of the electorate against the party's nominee, Hillary Clinton. For more than three years, the organization Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity has been reporting that metadata and other hard forensic evidence indicate that the DNC emails were not hacked by Russia or anyone else. Rather, they were copied onto an external storage device probably a thumb drive by someone with access to DNC computers. In Black Lives Matter news, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation said this week that it will investigate whether there was possible misconduct by district attorney's offices involved in the death of Ahmad Aubrey, a 25-year-old black man who was shot and killed by two white men while jogging February 23rd in Brunswick, Georgia. Also this week, Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear said prosecutors should review the police shooting death of Breonna Taylor, who was shot to death by Louisville police in March during a botched drug raid. Neither Taylor nor her boyfriend, Kenny Walker, who was there at the time, was a target of the raid. Walker fired his gun during the raid, thinking that he and Taylor were being robbed by the plainclothes officers and now he is being charged with attempted murder of a police officer. Activist Sean King has launched a petition on theactionpack.com to drop the charges against Walker. And in Indianapolis, the police detective who mocked Sean Reed after Reed had just been killed by police has reportedly been suspended. Quote, looks like it's going to be a closed casket, homie. End quote, the unarmed detective can be heard saying on the video after 21-year-old Sean Reed was fatally shot on May 6th while streaming his own death on Facebook Live. And finally, the nationwide call to cancel rents continued in D.C. this week, with the D.C. Tenants Union holding several actions around the district targeting the homes of D.C. council members who serve on the council's Committee on Housing. I caught up with one group of protesters outside the home of Councilmember Robert White in Northwest DC.
7: My name is David Heyman and I'm a supporter of the DC Tenant Union. So this is focused on trying to make sure that the council puts forward enough money and and support to cancel rents for tenants in this moment of pandemic when so many people can't work.
0: So what is this location here?
7: Uh, Robert White's home.
0: Okay, so, so we've
7: got folks around the city at different council members' homes right now. Specifically, folks who are on the housing committee.
0: So, did they did that committee vote against giving tenants relief?
7: There's uh, some budget hearings that are coming up, so we're really trying to make sure that they understand the need to really front and center the housing relief for the budget, upcoming budget. Okay, when are the hearings? That's a good question. They're in flux right now. The mayor just delayed. There was actually supposed to be a budget hearing this morning, which is why we're out here, but the mayor delayed the release of her budget, so it's probably going to happen sometime next month. You know, understanding that there's a pandemic and there's lots of moving parts right now, but the budget is way be- way behind schedule, so it makes it hard to figure out where we are with various things that, that tenants and workers need right now in the city.
0: Okay, and so what concretely is the Tenants Union asking for in terms of the rent relief?
7: So one is canceling rent so again if people aren't working right now they shouldn't be on the hook for their rent a two-year freeze on rent so no rents can go up for two years to give people a chance to recover from the pandemic making sure that there are eviction lawyers for everybody who needs one triple the emergency rent assistance program which provides city resources and then reclaim rent control there's a there was already an ongoing effort to try and make sure that rent control was updated and so their tenant union has a platform around rent control so we want people to adopt that full um, platform as well
0: okay. Thanks. Thank you. And those are some of our headlines and happenings. Stay with us.
6: Your body I told you leave your situations
2: It's National Nurses Week, a time set aside to celebrate the work of registered nurses. And this year's Nurses Week was supposed to be special as it marks the 200th anniversary of the birth of Lawrence Nightingale. The World Health Organization even designated this year the year of the nurse and midwife. Well, we are here today Say that nurses are not being valued the way we should be by our employers and our government who are failing to provide us safe workplaces and optimal protection as we care for patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. Instead, we are dying. Today, we will read the names of the 88 nurses who have died from COVID this pandemic hit. Just to give you perspective, when we were here last, we were protesting in front of the White House just two weeks ago, we read the names of 46 nurses. We have placed a pair of shoes for each nurse we have lost. We ask you to imagine the nurse who would have walked in these shoes. Imagine this nurse working hard to realize their dream of becoming a nurse, applying for school,
5: pulling all-nighters, studying for a
2: chemistry or anatomy and physiology exam. Imagine the nurse's hands as they prepare to draw blood or assist in a life-saving surgery or the birth of a child. Imagine this nurse filled with love and compassion for their patients and celebrating when that patient returns to health into the arms of their loved ones. Imagine this nurse filled with love and hope for their patient, seeing that hope drain away and fighting back their own tears as they sit with the family to offer comfort and support when that patient passes away. Know that these shoes stand for someone who woke up in the morning, or maybe in the afternoon,
6: or the middle of the night,
2: who pulled on their scrubs, kissed their children or other loved ones goodbye, and headed to work, knowing they were walking into danger. But yet they wouldn't. Like the nurse at my hospital here in Washington, DC, Helen the Helen was a kind-hearted, generous person, and dedicated herself to her patients, family, and friends. Helen got sick from COVID exposure at work. It didn't have to be this way. This death, like so many others, could have been prevented because these nurses put their patients above all else. They were committed to caring for those at their sickest, those in need, those trying to make it through their darkest and loneliest moments. They were committed to protecting others from the ravages of illness and being that voice, that advocate for their patients. But, who was there protecting these nurses? How many of these nurses worked in the hospitals that were long on patients but short on N95 respirators? How many of these nurses were failed by chaotic and haphazard protocols, which left them vulnerable to exposure and illness. How many of these nurses died because this administration, this Congress, our elected officials, our government agencies failed to act, to lead, and to protect them? We stand here today, our hearts full of pain, but also with discrimination and demanding action. It is past time for this President and Congress to act. It is past time for this President to fully use the Defense Protection Act and mandate that this country's manufacturers produce the personal protective and other medical equipment that nurses and other healthcare workers need to be safe to protect their patients and our country and to do so in the volumes required to meet the needs of our caregivers. If President Trump won't do it on his own, Congress needs to compel him to do so. Additionally, it's past time for Congress to direct the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to establish an emergency temporary standard on infectious diseases so that there are enforceable rules so that employers are required to provide the optimal personal protective equipment to protect health care workers during this pandemic every nurse on every ship in every hospital is putting themselves on the line during this pandemic it is time for the country to step up and protect them as they fight to protect us
0: that was Stephanie Sims, a member of National Nurses United, speaking outside the White House on Thursday, May 7th in a demonstration to mark National Nurses Week and to commemorate the 88 nurses at that time who had died due to the COVID-19 virus and to call on lawmakers to provide more protective equipment and support to health care workers and the American people. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. This is on the ground, on thegroundshow.org. Voices of resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarim. Well, May 8th, 2020 marked the 75th anniversary of the surrender of Nazi Germany to the Allied forces of the United States, the UK, and the Soviet Union in World War II. And since Nazi Germany is held up in Europe and the United States as what fascism is, I want to talk in this month's episode of the F word about the Nazi surrender and what the world looked like coming out of the war and up to today. Joining me to talk about that is the historian and journalist Vijay Prashad, the author of 30 books, including The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World. He is the chief editor of Left Word Books and director of the Tri-Continental. Welcome to On the Ground, Vijay.
1: Hey, thanks a lot. Nice to be with you.
0: So, in this series, we've used a definition by the 1960s revolutionary George Jackson to describe fascism, which he described as the condition at the imperial center, when the relationship between the government or the state and the corporation becomes indiscernible. And using that definition and also seeing that Germany is always held up as this example of fascism. It's occurred to us during the series for five years now that it leaves out the experiences of what has happened to people all over the world, in the third world, in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, where they've experienced tremendous assaults by capital, as well as brutal near systems of genocide, if not genocide. But those experiences aren't described as fascism, and that experience is Solely reserved for what Nazi Germany did in World War Two, So I just thought we could start with that. Well, in 1950,
1: the poet and politician, the communist poet, MS Cesar, wrote a beautiful poem called, oh, well, actually read it as a cry from the heart, called Discourse on Colonialism. And what MS Cesar, you know, who was from the Caribbean, uh, he understood fully the weight of Colonialism. What M.S. writes there is that, listen, Europeans, and it's written actually as almost a letter to Europeans. Listen, Europeans, you're surprised by Hitler, but in fact we have had Hitlers for at least a century. In other words, it's your officials, the French officials in Indochina, the British officials in India, and in very large parts of the African continent. We've seen Hitler. Before and Hitler is no surprise to us. You're surprised because Hitler is doing to you what your Hitlers have done to us for a hundred years. It's, it's a really moving poem, and I highly recommend Discourse on Colonialism. What he's saying is very important, which is that the brute force of capitalism in its imperialist adventures, necessary imperialist adventures overseas, has to be taken seriously. And linked to this is, I think, the important fact that Hitler himself was not seen as a monster in the early period of his rise. In fact, so-called Western democracies, which were not really democracies because I have to understand that France and Britain had enormous empires overseas where they had no democracy for more individuals, more human beings overseas than lived in their own countries. So, you know, these so-called Western democracy uh, they were hoping that Hitler would essentially march his army into Germany, into the Soviet Union and destroy the USSR because they feared communism more than Hitler. In fact, you know, people point to the pact that the Soviet Union made with Hitler in 1939, but the Western democracies made a pact with Hitler in 1938 when they allowed him to take um, Austria in the Anschluss. So if you look at it carefully, Um, Hitler only becomes a monster in the last stages of World War II and certainly after the war. But during this period, as the MSSR says, Hitler was a very familiar entity in the colonies. And secondly, the so-called Western democracies, they thought Hitler would be a useful force in their existential struggle against the USSR and against communism
0: in line with what you were just talking about in terms of British colonialism, Winston Churchill, you know, he's seen as this war hero here from World War II, but, you know, he was linked to uh, starvation of people and a real uh, deprivation of people in India.
1: Well, what you're referring to, I believe, is in the 1943 period when under Winston Churchill's command, the British decided to divert grain away from India and essentially prolonged, if not created, a famine called the Bengal famine of nineteen forty-three, in which between one and three million people perished. Now so I'm from Bengal. I was born not very far away from where this famine took place. And the residue of this famine lasts right into the period of my I was only born twenty some years after that famine. And you know, we all knew about this famine and, and the role of Churchill, but it was not information available outside. You know, Churchill's role in Indian the Bengal famine of 43, is not the only thing. You know, he was an officer up in what is now the northwest frontier province between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And, you know, these are people who were personally responsible for war crimes. Of course, the famine of 43 is a a crime against humanity because they diverted grain shipments. Mridula Mukherjee has written a brilliant book called Churchill's Secret War, where she details, you know, with British records, how they callously decided not to have grain shipped there. So, you know, from the standpoint of a place like India, what's the difference between Churchill and Hitler? I mean... I don't want to minimize the crimes of Hitler, genocidal crimes, crimes against humanity, grotesque crimes. I don't want to minimize that. But let's look at what Leopold did to the Congo, where they killed millions of people brutally. You know, Adam Hochschild's book. Adam Hochschild teaches at University of California, Berkeley. He's not an ideologue. He's written a very fine book based on the most available sources. Um, and he showed. Us in that the Belgians ruthlessly cut limbs of people, human beings, to basically teach other workers a lesson. You put that next to, of course, chattel slavery in the United States, genocide, I mean, who has not experienced Hitler before the 1920s and 1930s? Who has not experienced Which country? Uh, what was colonialism? And that's the point MSSR makes, I think, so forcefully. It's a point actually
0: not much considered nowadays. So after the war, there were these international laws put into place more of a response to what Nazi Germany did. And so many of those same laws have been flouted continually by the United States, especially starting in North Korea or starting in Korea, then Vietnam, and more recently, Iraq, in terms of the millions of people slaughtered. I think it was uh, Peter Boyle who I spoke to and just talked about how so many of those laws that were uh, people, there was prosecutions in Nuremberg and all of these different laws that were put in place that were supposed to establish some type of international order, they were broken within a few years after the war by the United States, and that continues to today. Well, I
1: mean, look, uh, firstly, we know a couple of things that happened right after the war. In 1951, Hannah Arendt, the famous German philosopher, published a book called The Origins of Totalitarianism, a book, uh, to my mind, mediocre quality, but it made the ideological points that the West wanted to make because it suggested that Nazism and communism were the same. And that book, you know, is routinely taught today in in political science departments to undergraduates and so on. It's a deeply ideological book. uh, unjust praised. Published in '51, the West essentially began to deny the actual history of World War II. You know, the very fact that the Nazis prosecuted Operation Barbarossa against the USSR in 1941. And from 1941 till May 1945, the Soviets bore the brunt of the Nazi war machine, if not for uh, the Red Army and the Soviet people uh, struggling against the onslaught of the full weight of Nazi uh, superior arms uh, for those four years, if not for that, if not for the Soviet defense of Stalingrad and, you know, Leningrad and then Moscow, if not for the Red Army breaking through, uh, you wouldn't have had the defeat of Nazism. You know, Hollywood plays a very disturbing role here. People imagine that the Normandy landing uh, is what actually broke the back of Nazi Germany. It's totally untrue. The back of Nazi Germany's war machine was broken on the Eastern Front. That was That's evident to a serious scholar of the war. They would know that the main battles took place at the Oder, the main battles took place in Poland, you know, and in, in the the way in which the Red Army with inferior arms was able to trounce the tank battalions of the Nazis. It helped that the weather was against the Nazi armies, which had relied on you know, swift movement, blitzkrieg and so on. It's not the Normandy landing or the Italian landing. And by the way, I'm saying that with a personal uh, uh, stake in this story because I have relatives who were in the British Indian Army who fought in Italy and, you know, some died off the coast of Spain and so on. So I don't want to minimize their role in the Italian campaign or the Normandy campaign or whatever. You know, enormous number of troops came from Africa, from Asia. You don't see them in in the Hollywood films, by the way, they all seem to be young men from the Midwest. Uh, I've never seen a film made in Hollywood that depicts the troops that came from Senegal, the troops that came from Gabon. You never see them in these movies. And you also don't see the actual Eastern Front fighting. You know, it's just not depicted. Uh, We don't know. We're not told that the Red Army liberated Auschwitz. We're not told that it was the Red Army that took Berlin. and, And then, therefore, on the Reichstag, Uh, It was the Red Army that put up the Soviet flag. This is all not there in the public record. It should be. But that's because from the 50s onwards, the Allied forces, the United States, Northern Europeans and NATO countries essentially, rewrote the history of the war and began to say that there's no difference between Nazism and Communism. This was an ideological battle. This is not serious historiography. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and actually, even to this day, marking the 75th anniversary, Facebook was kind of caught into a scandal because it was banning this photograph of the planting of the Soviet flag over the Reichstag. And, I was reading a little, and apparently it was kind of staged, but still. <laughs> then Facebook had to apologize and put the flag back on. But people who were posting this image, I guess, talking about trying to correct some of that history that we're told here and emphasize the fact that it was the Red Army that went into Berlin and captured it. I just want to
1: clarify something. It was entirely a staged photograph. There's nothing uh-huh. embarrassing about that. Right. I mean, you know, the... The Red Army photographer asked three So you know, they sent three soldiers up there. One was from Dagestan, uh, two were from Ukraine. They went up there, they held the flag, the photograph was taken. It was entirely staged, but come on, the Ewo photograph was staged. You know, the most iconic photographs in war are not, uh, you know, just taken spontaneously. It's true that Capra in Spain took a remarkable photograph of a Republican soldier being shot. Uh, That was not staged. But most of the iconic photographs are staged because the cameras they used in those days didn't have the kind of shutter speed that it allowed you to, you know, like sports photography today. They had to stage the pictures.
0: Right. No GoPro camera, right? Exactly. Right. So I wanted to switch to the economic order that was created after the war. If you can talk about the institutions created then, uh, including, uh, I think, you know, the IMF, the World Bank, all these different institutions that were created and how they have... They were established with this, I don't know, with a, this aura of of progress and that this would be something fair for the world economy. But they have uh, served a different type of purpose in terms of solidifying capital stranglehold on emerging formerly colonized countries and how this has led us to today. And, I I, I, you know, time goes by so fast, but I, I want us to get to today where we are in the latest capitalist crisis.
1: Well, firstly, it's, it's not the case that they set up institutions in Bretton Woods, in New Hampshire, the IMF, the World Bank, and everything went smoothly. This was a struggle. I mean, the capitalist countries wanted to stabilize their economies. Uh, they had to stabilize money. Initially, they had to Stabilize money against the gold standard, then later just the dollar. It was a struggle, you know. Other places didn't want to accept it. They fought back. The non-aligned movement was created in 1961 to fight against uh, the push from the North Atlantic countries. You know, they developed in the non-aligned movement the idea of the new international economic order. I just want to emphasize, it was a struggle, you know. Uh, The Western countries didn't dominate the world in some, uh, you know, complete total way. They had to fight every inch of the way uh, to subordinate places. And the instrument of subordination became debt and reliance on, you know, essentially the capitalist bloc for aid and for money. That was the instrument. And in the 1980s, during the debt crisis, these countries forced Uh, the formerly colonized countries essentially into position of greater subordination, putting them through the International Monetary Fund uh, protocols, the so-called structural adjustment policies, you know, making them cut spending for public sector, crushing their states and so on. And so what you end up happening is this happens to places in the third world, but very soon the same policies come back to the Western countries. You cut social spending, you cut health spending cut education spending you basically empty out the state you make what we call a neoliberal state and the liberals the kind of centrist elements they basically are the ones driving this agenda and they compromise themselves at the same time you have a long history of anti-left attack. You've basically cut back the left. You don't have much time to go into this. You know, the decline of trade unionism as a consequence of globalization means that the working class is weaker. The liberals have compromised themselves by these policies of essentially destroying the state. And that opens the door for the arrival of what we call the neo-fascists. I mean, the neo-fascists come essentially because the liberals delivered a neoliberal, eviscerated, destroyed state project Um, into their hands. They're able now to say, we want to defend people, but they don't have instruments to defend them with. So they turn once again, like the old fascists, against minorities, against immigrants, against anybody that they can point the finger at. And now Trump pointing the finger at China instead of at his own incompetence. And the fact that the neoliberal American state is totally incapable of dealing with something like a pandemic. These neo-fascists, they are the children of the destruction of uh, social democratic state, and they are the children of all those centuries of toxic, you know, hateful ideologies. Uh, in the United States in particular, the hateful racist ideas that have never been resolved, uh, you know, which, which germinated uh, through the enslavement of people on plantations, was never resolved. You know, this country has never resolved its problem with deep antipathy uh, of racism. It's never gone away. And that's so easy to pull out as the glue that holds together a significant enough voting block to bring you to power. They destroy democracy. They recover these old hateful ideas the central ideas. And they're doing it essentially because the liberals, the centrists destroyed um, public sector, destroyed the state, destroyed anything good about civilization.
0: That is the voice of historian and journalist Vijay Prashad, and this is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Averam, and we'll be right back. Stay with us.
3: Did my Lord deliver? Daniel, deliver, Daniel, deliver, Daniel. Did my Lord deliver? Daniel, and why not every man? He delivered Daniel from the lion's den, Jonah from the belly of the whale, and the Hebrew children from the fiery furnace, and why not every man? Didn't my Lord deliver? Daniel, deliver Daniel, deliver Daniel, didn't my Lord deliver? Daniel, and why not every man? The moon runs down in a purple stream. The sun refused to shine. Every star did disappear, yes. Freedom shall be mine. Did my lord deliver? Daniel, deliver. Daniel, deliver. Daniel, uh, did my lord deliver? Daniel, and why not every man?
0: This is On the Ground, On thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and I'm speaking with Vijay Prashad, author, historian, journalist, for this month's episode of The F Word. And we're talking about the 75th anniversary of the Nazi surrender during World War II. And Vijay, I wanted to pick up where you left off and talk about what other economies and other movements that emerged after World War II. And one of them is the emergence of China. Last year on the show, we marked the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. That was in 1949, just four years after the close of World War II, when China defeated the U.S.-backed forces, uh, U.S. and Europe, European-backed forces, and emerged victorious after a century of colonization and exploitation, what they call the century of humiliation. So um, it's actually pretty startling to me to actually hear like something from the BBC talking about China as if they have any kind of moral authority to talk about what path China chooses after its, its own exploitation of China for a century. And that's just an especially egregious example of what corporate media is doing. And kind of taking this opportunity during the pandemic to blame China, you know, hop on this narrative and rewriting the history of this most recent timeline of what has actually happened since China first reported this outbreak uh, at the end of December and the start of this year in January, and it's also to um, obscure the success that China and other uh, socialist-style economies have had in combating the the virus versus capitalist countries.
1: Yeah, I mean this is a very significant issue. What we need to understand, I think is that here's the issue. Uh, we are saying, rewriting the timeline. I mean, I think people are not serious. The journalists who are doing this are not serious. Uh, they are accepting what the U.S. State Department is saying, what Mike Pompeo is saying. They are essentially becoming stenographers of the State Department. They're not taking the story seriously, because, you know, my colleagues and I from TriContinental we looked at the public record, well, We have Chinese, uh, that's helpful, because then you can look at the National Health Commission websites, you can look at the Center for Disease Control in Beijing, in Hubei province, you can look at all the public material, public material at the WHO, and if you reconstruct what's publicly available, it's the exact opposite of what, you know, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or Washington Post, any of them are saying, because they are trying to push a story of suppression, We just don't see the story of suppression. What you see is reprimand of some doctors who went outside the chain of, you know, communication, what they're supposed to do. You're supposed to inform your superiors in the hospital if something unusual is going on, not go out into social media, into WeChat. The reason you don't want people to go to WeChat is you don't want to create general panic. You need to understand what's going on in a scientific way. Now, later the government said we should not have reprimanded people. And by the way, reprimand is different from suppression. You know, the, the captain of the U.S. is Roosevelt was reprimanded because he wrote about an outbreak of coronavirus on his ship. He wrote about that in his hometown newspaper. Um, he was reprimanded for that. In fact, he lost command. Uh, that's not suppression. You know, the story of what was happening on the ship was now known in the chain of command. It's just that they weren't acting on it. So he went outside. Um, in the Chinese case, there's no evidence that the authorities were not acting. So it's. I don't actually believe that these journalists were getting the story wrong. I think they were getting it right for a certain interest. They were basically swallowing wholesale what Mike Pompeo was saying, and they were delivering it to the public. You know, they were not wanting to report what the public record shows. Now, to their credit, to the Wall Street Journal's credit, it ran a very good story showing how Alex Azar, the head of Human Services, Health and Human Services in the United States, suppressed the story. You know, he heard about Uh, The severity, lethality of this virus on the 3rd of January, and Alex Azar didn't do anything for two weeks. And by the way, that's not me saying it again, that's the Wall Street Journal saying it. They did an excellent uh, study of this. So there is suppression happening. It's Alex Azar's suppression. I wouldn't even call it suppression, I would call it incompetence. They didn't act on the information. If you look at Vietnam, Prime Minister Nguyen and his government acted immediately. You know, they seized the nettle and they went to work trying to break the chain of infection. United States, nothing was done. So they blamed China. I mean, this is of a peace, not just with the trade war, but you see, this is of a piece with the fear of the rise of China to threaten American preponderant power. While all this is going on, you know, this blaming China for the coronavirus, which is ridiculous, while this is going on, The United States Indo-Pacific Command and its Admiral Davidson is out there building the case to militarize, further militarize the ring around China. You know, they want a missile Cold War against China. They are talking about a missile gap. I mean, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, totally factually challenged elected official, uh, is talking about a missile gap by all account, China is not interested in this conflict. So this is a unilateral imposition of a conflict by the United States.
0: Uh, I was talking to some friends about this not that long ago, and I think we were trying to recall, like, either it was like a Richard Pryor joke or some joke a comedian told about, like, who's going to go and fight a billion Chinese? And, and we were th- thinking about the joke because this type of rhetoric that is being spewed here in this country is the type of rhetoric that will kind of hype up people who don't have the kind of information that you have. All right. When you think about what will actually hype up the American public to have an anti-Chinese sentiment, it's precisely what they're doing because what they're trying to do is blame China for the total economic collapse of this country, the fact that people are out of work, you know, don't have money, don't have, you know, a way to feed their families. And that is something that will strike at the core of people. And if you can't convince them that it's the Chinese, the fault of the Chinese instead of how we've managed our own government. But that's related to the last thing I want to ask you about. And that is how After World War II, Germany, I think it was called the Marshall Plan, and Germany was given assistance to rebuild. And that's always struck me because, you know, a lot of people look at that compared to the imposition of debt put on the third world countries, as you mentioned earlier. And just bringing it up to today and closer to home, last week we covered the people's bailout and uh, people talking about how compared to European capitalist countries or even our neighbor to the north, Canada, where people have received like monthly stipends from the government because they uh, have been told to stay in, to either their jobs have been eliminated or they can't go to work because of the pandemic. And um, compared to here, where people have basically been sent home with no job, no money, no bailout, You know, there's this $1,200 check, which most of us haven't gotten. Things are desperate for millions of Americans, tens of millions of Americans. And so I wanted to kind of end with a discussion of what the current neoliberal order means here and compared to, you know, how China handled their population. Yeah. And how other countries handled their populations.
1: There's a routine kind of uh, callousness in the way the United States government approaches its own people. You don't see uh, much, you know, feeling that people have for the popular struggles and the, what's going on. There are now studies that are coming out that show that 41 percent of Americans are relying on food banks. That's just mind blowing because before the Corona recession. Only 11%, or only, I mean, 11% were reliant, reliant upon food banks. That jumped to 41%. That's an amazing number. You know, it's just shameful. Um, what local governments in places like Kerala are doing is they're not giving cash transfer. You know, 9-10% of Americans don't have bank accounts. So cash transfer doesn't work. What they're doing in places like Kerala is local governments are creating public kitchens. But they just cook food and people come and eat it, you know. Uh, and they have many of these public kitchens, uh, and many of them are produced by voluntary organizations uh, working with the local self-government, trade unions, and so on.
0: Are but you saying? Keral- are you saying Kerala?
1: Yes, Kerala in south in southern India. Okay, uh, this is uh, this is how they are dealing with people's, um, you know, you know the, the plight of people. Um, but you know, here what you what you have is you have cash transfers on the one side and then you have food banks which are totally overwhelmed, You know, unable to deal with the numbers. And what happens when you do cash transfers is that you see price inflation because you put more money into hands of people, they run to the grocery stores, anyway supply chain is damaged and prices of food will go up. If instead the government buys food in bulk, distributes it to local self-government, they produce community kitchens, a much better way to deal with the crisis situation. But in the United States, you simply don't have the capacity to do public action of this scale. You simply don't have it. And that has a lot to do with what I said earlier, uh, which is that you don't have um, the ability uh, to do this because you've destroyed the state. The state's social function is not there. You don't have social workers at capacity. You don't have nurses, doctors, public health nurses in capacity and so on. So what happens is that you end up in a situation where you have the only ability is for the treasury department to say, well, we mail out checks. Even that they cannot do because they are understaffed. You know, you don't have a state anymore. That's the problem.
0: Wow. Well, I guess that that might be the point that we should leave this. uh, You know, going from the defeat of Nazi Germany to the destruction of the state. So I've been speaking with Vijay Prashad, author, journalist, uh, author of more than 30 books, right? And uh, director of the Tri-Continental and editor of Left Word Books. Thank you so much for joining me today, Vijay.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks a lot.
0: And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. Special thanks to Chantel James and Thomas O'Rourke. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On the Ground Show. And we have a new podcast on. Apple, Android, and more platforms to come. The new podcast is On the Ground with Esther Ivarum, and the width is just the letter W, so On the Ground W Esther Iverum, And it has uh, a picket sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included Mary J. Blige, No More Drama, Nana Vasconcelos and the Bush Dancers, Rain Dance, Paul Robeson, Didn't My Lord Deliver Daniel, and Scandalize My Name. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Iveram. Until next time, keep raising your voice and fight the power.